from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland made his first appearance before the House Judiciary Committee. The meeting was heated from the start. First sentence of your memo, very first sentence, you said, in recent months, there's been a disturbing spike in harassment, intimidation, threats of violence. Yes. When did you first review the data showing this so-called disturbing uptick? So I read the letter, and we have been seeing over time threats. Whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't ask you. So you read the letter. That's, that's your source? That was the ranking member Jim Jordan asking the attorney general about his October 4th memo announcing the launch of a federal task force being used uh, to track parents at school board meetings, and it was being influenced by the letter from the National School Boards Association. There were also questions about whether or not the attorney general violated federal ethics guidelines with his memo. We'll be joined in just a moment by Congressman Mike Johnson of Louisiana, a member of the House Judiciary Committee. We'll also be joined later by Texas Congressman Chip Roy, who gained a stunning admission today from the attorney general. I'll let him explain that. And Dave Boyer, White House correspondent with The Washington Times, covered the hearing, and he is here with an overview of today's uh, raucous hearing. And yesterday, the Biden administration announced plans to distribute COVID shots for children ages 5 through 11 as soon as the FDA approves the jab for tots. We will uh, wonder We wonder whether or not this will lead to more mandates. What about safety issues? We'll talk with Dr. Andrew Bostom, clinical trialist and associate professor of family medicine at Brown University. Then the enactment and enforcement of laws have become partisan. Democratic prosecutors refusing to enforce laws by Republican lawmakers and more Republican state leaders are challenging executive orders by President Biden. Is there a difference between the two? And is lawlessness rising in our country? And what are we to make of this? Dr. David Clawson, director of our Center for Biblical Worldview, joins me for that conversation. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Gab, it's at Tony Perkins. All right. Um, the Attorney General, Mary Garland, faced intense questioning today from members of the House Judiciary Committee during a hearing on the oversight of the Justice Department. And at center stage was the Attorney General's memo regarding the alleged threat that parents pose to school officials. Joining me now to talk about what came out of today's hearing is Congressman Mike Johnson. He is a member of the House Judiciary Committee and the uh, top-ranked Republican for the Subcommittee on Constitution, Civil Rights, and Civil Liberties. He also has two decades of previous experience in constitutional law. He represents the 4th Congressional District of Louisiana. Congressman, welcome back to the program. Hey, Tony. Great to be with you, as always. All right, your line of questioning focused on whether the Attorney General sought ethics guidance before he issued his memo. Why did you ask that question? Well, because it's a really important legal question. You know, this was a surprising hearing today for a number of reasons. Tony, as you know, it's the first time the Attorney General has appeared before the House Judiciary Committee. We have direct oversight over the Department of Justice. He's been in office for seven months. This is the first time we had to ask him questions. We've sent a number of letters that we've not received responses to yet. So my question centered upon, as you, as you noted, his directive to the school boards. And here's the central problem. There really is not only a, a political question here, it seems to have been a politicized decision to send that in response to a National School Board Association uh, demand, but, but I believe more important than that is the ethics component. His son-in-law 
is widely reported now to be a co-founder, obviously a direct interest holder in this in this group called the Panorama Education Company. And what they do is they survey students across America, often without parental consent, uh, and they use that in a bid to promote, get this, uh, controversial curriculum about critical race theory and sexual identity and, 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 and all these other matters. These are the very subjects, the very things that parents are going to school boards and, and protesting, registering their objection to. So for the attorney general to step into the middle of this, insert the federal Department of Justice into a local and state matter, a local school board matter, and suggest that parents should not be doing that, raises a lot of questions about his family's financial interest in that, that very issue. I mean, it certainly looks on its face as if there is a conflict of interest here where you have the attorney general of the United States, his son-in-law, selling curriculum to these schools across America on critical race theory, which, as you pointed out, is the focal point of a lot of these uh, uh, protests that are taking place at these local school boards. And he's simply the attorney general. It appears on his face that he's trying to intimidate parents and keep them from going to these school board meetings. It, it does appear that way. And that's the problem under federal law. The, the Code of Federal Rela- Regulations is very clear on this. The, the attorney general, remember, he's the chief law enforcement officer in our entire federal system. He's supposed to always jealously guard uh, his, his, his character, the appearance of, of, of propriety. And so now people are questioning that. They, they, they believe that he is not being impartial, that he's using the full weight of that heavy office to bear down on parents for merely exercising their free exercise rights. But more importantly, it appears that his own daughter and son-in-law have a direct financial interest in stopping those parent protests. You know, it was interesting. I asked him the question multiple times. The clips of that hearing have been showed everywhere today because he dodged the question over and over. And Tony, he would not submit to a, to a simple ethics review of what he has done. And I, I argue, and I think many people believe, that's a direct violation of the federal code of regulations. So what was the outcome? Did he give a explanation justifying him not seeking this guidance? No, that was one of the very surprising things about the hearing. He was one of the most ill-prepared witnesses that I've seen in my more than 20 years of law practice and questioning witness at the state legislative level and in Congress. It was, it was very surprising. I mean, remember, he's the U.S. attorney general, but he seemed ill-prepared to answer our questions. He delivered uh, simple talking points over and over. And in response to that very serious series of questions that I asked about this big ethics issue, he delivered the same talking point over and over. It was it was truly surprising. He was saved by the bell because I ran out of time on the questions, but that is not going to be the end of this inquiry. A lot of people, I would say millions of Americans now, are on to this, and I think he'll have to answer to it sooner or later. So, Congressman Johnson, what's the next step? Uh, can the committee, uh, being that the Republicans are in the minority, can anything be done here? Well, look, we all have a responsibility of oversight over the DOJ, regardless of whether we're in the majority or minority party. And I can tell you the Republicans will continue to press on these issues. We can't go any further than that, really, until we regain the majority next year, which I believe is almost a certainty now. But I can tell you that there will be a reckoning when we get the gavels back, because we have to do that. The, The point I made at the beginning of all this and that many of us repeated all day is that the American people are losing their faith in our system of justice. They're losing uh, their faith in the Department of Justice, which is supposed to uphold the Constitution. But instead of uh, addressing all these pressing matters that are facing the country, they're weaponizing the DOJ. It's it's a terrible, terrible development, and it has huge implications for, for so many aspects of the federal government. 
Well, I know you have to uh, to run. I appreciate you joining us uh, with a, uh, an analysis of uh, today's hearing. And I will just say this. I think it's an important point to put these officials on the record and on notice, rather, that if the Republicans do retake the majority, which it does appear that that's uh, in the works, that uh, they will be held accountable. That may temper some of their actions between now and, uh, and uh, 2022. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Tony. Appreciate all you do. All right. Congressman Mike Johnson of Louisiana. Now, while the attorney general's memo on the threat posed by concerned parents sparked much of the fireworks at today's hearing, uh, that wasn't the only thing discussed. Joining me now to talk about what else came up during today's hearing is uh, Dave. Uh, we have Dave Boyer. He is a White House correspondent at The Washington Times. Uh, he'll be joining us in, uh, in, in just a moment. But I, I, I want to emphasize the fact that when you look at uh, the the arrogance of this administration, there's a real dangerous time between now and when the Republicans may retake the majority, which all the polling and the policies being pushed by the Democratic majority would suggest is going to happen. Very similar to what happened back in 2009. But in this period of uh, uncertainty and desperation, I think the Democrats could push all kinds of bad things through, which is why we've been talking about the reconciliation bill, stuff they've been trying to do for decades. Uh, and so that's why we're watching very closely where they would eliminate the legislative filibuster and and uh, other matters that could fundamentally change government in our country. Well, joining us now is uh, Dave Boyer. He's White House correspondent, uh, correspondent at The Washington Times. Dave, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So uh, we were just talking with Congressman Mike Johnson about the exchange he had over the ethics issues, but there were other issues beyond the memo uh, regarding parental involvement in education. What were the other big issues that came up in uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland's first appearance before the House Judiciary Committee? Well, a lot of Republican lawmakers were concerned about his what they perceive as his lack of action on immigration and border security uh, and the administration's lack of control of the border in general. Um, the Justice Department does control immigration judges who issue de deportation orders, and they were pressing uh, the attorney general about what exactly he's doing to uh, deport people who have been arrested for you know being in the country illegally. He didn't seem to have any good answers to that. He kept uh, deflecting it. Well, that's a, that's a homeland security question. And to a large extent, he's right, but he also has a role to play, and he, he didn't seem completely up to speed on that. Uh, one of the more interesting things I thought was that Congressman Ken Buck uh, from Colorado, a Republican, really did an effective job, I think, of, of pushing uh, for a special counsel to investigate Hunter Biden's art sales. Um, didn't get a lot of attention in, in the media today, but uh, Ken Buck uh, from Colorado really laid out a very convincing case for why this needs some some scrutiny. Uh, you know, the, the art gallery in New York uh, got federal uh, disaster loans from the Small Business Administration. And now Hunter Biden's artwork is selling for up to half a million dollars a painting. And, and he's under investigation already for tax fraud by the IRS and the Justice Department. And, you know, the attorney general just kind of threw up his hands and said, well, I'll, I'll take it under advisement, but I can't comment on anything like that. 
Yeah, I, I actually watched uh, Congressman Buck uh, in that exchange. Uh, at, at the beginning, uh, in the opening statement by the chairman, uh, Jerry Nadler, you know, he's, he claimed that there was a broader pattern that led to the increased violence across the country. He was talking about the January 6th riot. He said, from the riot to the increased attacks against Asian Americans during the pandemic to the growing threats of violence against public servants. Uh, I was just going to ask you, did, did he mention the riots in 2020? Uh, you know, plural businesses and federal buildings that were looted and burned, or did he just begin with January 6th as his reference point for violence? No, he didn't mention those riots during the, the, the George Floyd summer of protests uh, at all and, and, the, and the, the mayhem and, and the destruction that was caused. He was just starting with a timeline of January 6th and, and moving on from there and, and, and very much portraying the civil unrest as a, as a you know, one-sided partisan uh, sort of a, you know, the the white supremacist, neo-Nazi kind of extremist on the right uh, problem. Uh, Dave, we're out of time, but one final question for, for you. Was it just me or did this look like it was a pretty tense hearing? Yes, I think you're right. It was, it was tense. And I think, I think the attorney general came across as someone who's, you know, obviously it's a big job, but he came across as someone who still hasn't mastered his, his department. Yeah. Yeah. Dave Boyer, great to talk with you. Thanks so much for uh, giving us an overview of today's hearing. Thanks for having me. All right. Coming up, we'll continue our coverage of uh, today's hearing and get Congressman Chip Roy's take on what came out and what didn't. He got, a, I think, a surprising admission from the attorney general. He shares it with us next. Don't go away. More than ever before, Christians need to be grounded in the truth of God's Word and be prepared to articulate them in a winsome manner. That is why Family Research Council has launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. By applying the Bible and the historical teachings of the Church to a wide range of relevant issues, including voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality, the experts at the Center have provided resources to help Christians live by a biblical worldview. To understand why scripture must be authoritative and to equip believers to advance and defend the faith in the workplace, in schools, in their communities, and in the public square. Access free resources like the Biblical Worldview series at frc.org worldview. To get highlights of the latest work of the Worldview Fellows, including their latest blogs, op-eds, interviews, and publications, sign up at frc.org subscriptions. Here's a moment of hope for your home with Jerry and Becky Drace. My feet hurt. They really do. Taking care of your feet and wearing the proper shoes will make you feel better. Listen to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Uh, as you move through your daily activities, do you ever consider that God may lead someone across your path that needs a word from you? Your feet may cross their path. Do you take time to prepare for those unexpected encounters? Do you walk through the scripture daily so that you are prepared with the word you share? Have you taught your children that God often acts in the most unusual ways to bring people across our paths? Your feet may still hurt after a long day of use, but the path you've walked will be more pleasant and fulfilling if you've worn the shoes of the gospel. Learn more about the ministry of Jerry and Becky Drace, including evangelism with integrity, devotions, articles, and more at hopeforthehome.org. 
All for the sake of the gospel. Hey, it's Michael Woolworth with Bible League International, and let me tell you about Jaime. He's an itinerant pastor in Ecuador in Latin America. He'll travel days by foot, boat, and mule. He's been beaten by warlocks. He's been robbed of everything in his possession, and he suffered broken bones after falling 60 feet in the Andes Mountains. Now, what awaits him at the end of each trip? It's a thriving congregation of more than 100 believers where Christianity is fiercely opposed. And when I share Jaime's story and how he serves for the sake of the gospel, I recall Isaiah. 6 8. Whom shall I send? Who will go? And I believe this man is admirably answering that call and enduring more than most pastors ever will. And like others in the world where Bibles are desperately needed, Jaime is humbly asking us to send God's Word. Bible League invites you to send a Bible for only $5 every gift match, regardless of size. Call 800 Yes Word. 800 Y E S W O R D. Or click sendbiblesnow.org. That's sendbiblesnow.org. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So good to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Check it out. All right, during today's hearing on the oversight of the Justice Department, Attorney General Merrick Garland on multiple occasions claimed that his memo about concerned parents dealt with violence. But notably, the arrest highlighted in the National School Boards Association's letter to President Biden, which the Attorney General admitted he read and based his memo on, had nothing to do with any threat or violence against school board members. And even the Attorney General had to admit that the father who was arrested would not be considered a threat, though the NSBA would. When this statement bothered the father of the girl, I'm a father of a daughter, I believe you are too, sir. The girl who had been raped, sodomized in the bathroom of a high school by a dude wearing a skirt, that father reacted. Now that father reacted by simply using a derogatory word. Would that statement have bothered you if your daughter had been raped, if somebody said that it didn't occur? Again, I, I don't know anything about the facts of this case, but derogatory words are not what my memorandum is about. With me now is the congressman who pressed the attorney general on the case in Virginia's Loudoun County, Congressman Chip Roy. He represents the 21st Congressional District of Texas and actually has ties to Loudoun County. Congressman, welcome back to the program. Tony, great to be on the show as always. Uh, actually, you grew up there in Loudoun County, so you're familiar with the area. Yeah, yeah. Despite longtime Texas roots dating back to the 1850s, my mom and dad moved up to that neck of the woods in uh, northern Virginia. And so uh, I grew up in Loudoun County proudly. It was a great school. I was very blessed. But back then we were a pretty rural conservative school. We certainly weren't uh, engaging in the kind of activities that we're seeing now unfold in Loudoun, sadly, uh, and that we're now seeing the uh, FBI being empowered by the attorney general through political pressure from the White House that we now know were coordinated uh, with leftist organizations to uh, try to put pressure to politicize this and have the FBI targeting parents. And I was glad to see my colleague uh, Jim Jordan press the attorney general today to get the attorney general to acknowledge that they they actually engaged in that endeavor as a result of that memorandum from the liberals with this National School Boards Association. And then your friend and mine, Mike Johnson, did an extraordinary job hammering the attorney general and the conflicts of interest with his own son on critical race theory. So we got a lot out of the uh, hearing today. Now, Congressman Roy, I, I thought you brought out an astonishing, astonishing admission from the attorney general when you presented, presented this situation in Loudoun County 
which is referenced in the National School Board letter, which he said he read and prompted him to send out his memo launching this task force, that he admitted he had no idea about the case you were asking him about, which is at the center of the National School Boards Association's letter. Yeah, well, I have been in uh, modest uh, communication with the father of, of that young lady. Um, and, uh, it, and look, I, obviously our prayers go out to them. I always hate I, the reason I've been in communication is because I don't like to politicize things. This is a human being. This is a little girl. Uh, but but they understand the importance of this. This is why he went to the school board in July. But yet he was ridiculed. He was uh, turned into the poster child for so-called domestic terrorism. But what we now know is that that memorandum put forward by the National Association of School Boards, which is very left-leaning, uh, we now know through FOIA requests from, from some organizations like uh, Parents uh, uh, Defending Education, uh, they did the FOIA request and they found out and saw that the White House had been coordinating with this organization for weeks, for a long time, leading up to the September 29th memorandum, but that then five days later, the Attorney General then put out a directive to the FBI to go target parents for this so-called domestic terrorism. And in that memo, footnote 13 directly cites to the Loudoun County case, and it was those outside organizations that were you know, putting out images of this man, Scott Smith, as a domestic terrorist for daring to just show up and exercise his First Amendment rights at a school board about his daughter who had been raped in the school that he sent her to be educated in. I mean, just saying a few words is on the low side of what I might have been doing in that circumstance. So the evidence is now out through the FOIA that there was collusion between the White House and this uh, leftist organization, the National School Boards Association, that, in fact, I mean, when you read their letter, I think it was a six-page letter that they sent to President Biden, calling on everything from the Patriot Act to be used and utilized to go after these parents, it was clear that the White House's fingerprints, the Biden administration's fingerprints were all over that letter. Yeah, and I, and I frankly, I don't accept that the attorney general can just sort of stumble his way through it saying, oh, well, this is just a state and local issue. I don't know the facts. I mean, that's bogus. Right? First of all, you had the memo that connected it back to Loudon that your organization, the attorney general's office, the Department of Justice, made the decision based upon. But also, you're now engaging in t- saying the FBI should be inserting itself into what are inherently state and local matters, right? The disagreements that a parent might have with the school board. If there's any kind of violence, great. The local law enforcement can say it was a crime committed, and then they can go prosecute the, the, the crime. Why is the Department of Justice getting involved? Because it's political. You inserted the Department of Justice into state and local activities, and then you try to claim that you don't know the facts of the very underlying state and local activity upon which you base your determination to engage. It, it defies any kind of common sense, and I think now we see why it's a good thing that Mr. Garland is not on the United States Supreme Court. So, Congressman uh, Chip Roy, last question for you. What's next? How, how do we follow up on this? What, what are the next steps? Well, obviously, we're going to be following up with further questions of the Department of Justice. I think now that we've got this information, we got it late today about the information from the FOIA request showing that the White House has been coordinating with it. Uh, we're going to lean into that and make sure our Senate colleagues, the next time they've got a chance uh, to ask questions. Uh, and we're going to have to have parents continue to do what they're doing. I mean, God bless you, Tony. You were out in Leesburg uh, a few weeks back. I couldn't make it. 
Uh, but uh, we've got parents all over this country that are awakening to what's been happening with critical race theory, what's happening with this uh, transgender nonsense. Uh, they're trying to force down the throats of the American people and the American people aren't having it. And that's the best way to hold everybody accountable. Accountable yeah. doesn't take a majority. It takes a, a minority willing to set brush fires of freedom. That's Sam Adams. And I know you know that. Yes. So we're going to we're yes. going to keep fighting for it. It's a team effort. And uh, we appreciate uh, all that you and your colleagues are doing on Capitol Hill. And we'll keep uh, we'll keep doing our part. And I'm, I'm prayerful and hopeful parents will continue to do theirs as well. Uh, Jeff, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for being you with too. us. God bless you, friend. All right. Coming up, the White House has set its target on 28 million children who have not yet gotten COVID shots. It's uh, shots for tots. Going to talk about it next. Don't go away. More Washington Watch to come. Making the most of your money. Here's Dan Celia on American Family Radio. Tesla posts record revenue and profits for its third quarter. I don't know, that's not saying a whole lot because Tesla hasn't had a whole lot of quarters that have been positive. But lately, the last couple of years, they've seen a bit more and they posted a record profit. So I guess that's good news and we take some of that with some of the bad news. FDA clears Moderna and J&J COVID boosters. Whew, that's good. I was afraid they were going to miss out on that 10 or $15 billion shot in the arm that they're going to get from giving everybody the shot in the arm. And if they get this approved and OSHA and CDC, all the people that shouldn't be making rules and regulations demanding what we do approves the vaccine for five to 12 year olds. That's where they're hoping to happen. That's going to be even a bigger shot in the arm for the pharmaceuticals. Again, pardon the pun, but it's all about the money and they'll be chasing a whole lot of it here when that all gets approved. Looking further at economic data, the big economic data is going to be Friday, and that's going to be PMI, Manufacturing and Service Sector Indexes. And that is going to mean a lot. I expect they're going to be just slightly down, maybe down more than slightly from where they were in September. This is an October number coming out. So relatively quiet week. Everybody's still gearing up and waiting and watching earnings. They're going to start to ramp up here through the end of next week. Want to hear more financial advice from Dan Celia? Look for his podcast at AFR.net. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So good to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. All right, yesterday, the Biden administration rolled out its Shots for Tots plan uh, to get COVID shots into children ages 5 to 11, though it still has to wait for the go-ahead from the Food and Drug Administration. Probably just a formality. Uh, Already, the administration has procured uh, enough shots for every one of the 28 million children that they've identified in the country. 
and uh, just simply waiting for the final green light. They already have a distribution plan out there. Uh, and that could, the approval could come as early as the first week in November. Uh, the uh, Surgeon General, uh, I'm looking for my notes here, but we've got a clip. I want to play, play that clip of the, the uh, Surgeon General. I also General. think that parents across the country have been waiting for a vaccine for a long time and are eager that this moment may be close. Now, the question is, and I'm sure there may be some parents that are eager to get this vaccine, although I'm not quite sure that it's 28 million uh, parents or the parents of 28 million children are eager for this. But the question is, uh, will this lead to another mandate? And also, what about side effects, consequences? Is that being considered here? Uh, when we talk about children. Joining me now to talk about this is Dr. Andrew Bostom. He's a clinical trialist and associate professor of family medicine at Brown University. Dr. Bostom, welcome back to Washington Watch. Uh, thank you for having me back on, Tony. All right, let me just ask you this question straight up. The Biden administration rolling out this plan, they've already procured uh, 28 million doses uh, to be able to vaccinate uh, these children, give children these shots. Um, do we know enough about this yet? Absolutely not. Uh, so uh, we, what we do know is that children in this, in this age range with, with exceedingly rare exceptions, uh, kids with neurodevelopmental disabilities, maybe uh, kids that unfortunately are morbidly obese, perhaps um, healthy children have, have, have close to zero risk from developing serious COVID uh, illness. And, and in fact, uh, they're at significantly higher risk from from both seasonal flu and and and, and certainly uh, pan pandemic flu, um, and yet we've never seen any sort of draconian mandates, uh, and um, uh, whether it's mask mandates, vaccine mandates, um, and I, I just don't understand this. And and on top of that, Tony, the the limited data we have from for vaccination in children tells us nothing about long term long term consequences. Um, and, and frankly, because, again, because, you know, when you're looking at, at clinical trial data, Tony, you, you have to have clinical outcomes. And because they're so rare in children, we, we have these, you know, meaningless surrogates like, you know, did, did the kid develop basically a sniffles or not? And, and was that reduced in the vaccinated group versus the unvaccinated group? When we get down to this age range, it's usually just the development of an antibody response. Uh, that they that they've tracked in in their in, in the in the studies that have been done, so uh, no, I think this is this is a profound mistake. Uh, the vaccination program should be targeting high risk populations. When you when you winnow it down in kids, you probably could identify a few, but they would be exceedingly rare, um, and they should be studied separately uh, in an appropriate randomized controlled trial, which would actually look at whether or not you you prevented serious COVID illness in high risk children hospitalization, et cetera. Um, and we don't have any of this data. Well, I'm, I'm sure it's safe to assume that the Biden administration, within the Biden administration, there's consensus that this is what they need to do. But what about in the medical community? Is there consensus that we need to vaccinate children or give children the COVID shot? Uh, there's certainly not consensus, but there, unfortunately, um, I would say there's, there's not enough um, uh, uh, dissenting voices to just Stop, slow down the momentum, uh, which is which is really a, a, a been a tragedy of this whole pandemic. Um, yeah, there are certainly people that will speak out, um, and there have been pediatricians that will speak out. 
but it's it's the sad story. The sad reality, Tony, is that they're in they're in the minority. Um, and, and is there a reason? Is there Dr. Bossom, is there a reason for that? Do we see the weight of uh, kind of the the cancel culture coming down yes. on those minority voices? Yeah, I'll give you an, I'll give you a very concrete example. So there was a there was a wonderful uh, uh, study done out of Sweden during the first wave in Sweden. If you recall, Tony, Sweden kept its schools open through age sixteen. Uh, teachers, uh, children were unmasked in school. There's obviously there was no vaccine, um, and they they didn't report during the first wave a single pediatric death. And this was written up as a research letter to the New England Journal of Medicine by a, by a pediatrician slash pediatrician epidemiologist. Um, it was it was a very clear, concise study with a strong message that that children do well with this disease. Um, and that and that and that they don't need to be kept out of school, et cetera. The, the investigator was so pilloried by his colleagues that he, he wrote an open letter and said he would never he would never do research on COVID again. This is this is the environment that that people face. Wow. Amazing. And I thought we were supposed to follow the science. Exactly. Uh, and, and see what the science says. Dr. Bostom, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much Thanks, for yeah, coming on today. All right. Sure. Yeah, what happens when you talk about following the science? All right, well, I tell you what. On the other side of this break, I'm going to talk about lawlessness that's on the rise. Now, don't get, uh, you know, don't get upset. But there's this spirit of lawlessness. And and, um, we see those that are refusing to enforce the law. We've seen it on the streets of America. What are we to make of this? It is a very dangerous thing. And I'm talking about on both sides of the political aisle. We have to understand the foundation of law and the fact that we have to be, a, if we're to be a people governed by law, we have to abide by the law. Uh, David Clawson joins me after the break for that conversation. Stick around. More to come. Today, moral relativism and political correctness are assaulting truth. How can the world have hope? when believers themselves aren't clear on the authority of the Bible. The Church of Jesus Christ always faces a tremendous temptation to deviate from the Word of God. The God who speaks clearly expresses God's intent in giving us His Word and the response that is demanded of those who hear. Nobody ever encounters God and says, that was boring and irrelevant. When people say that about the Bible, It just says to me, they've not encountered the God of the Bible. Our faith is rooted in history, and and consequently, we need to use the evidence and never be afraid of it. The God Who Speaks is a feature-length documentary from the American Family Association, which could bolster your confidence in the Word of God. Churches really need to see this, really need to understand what the Bible actually is. Available now at thegodwhospeaks.org. Now more than ever, Christians are looking for a news source they can depend on to give them news coverage from a conservative biblical perspective. We strive to do that at American Family News. We're looking for a Christian journalist who feels led by the Lord to help us accomplish this mission. If you have training and preferably experience in the broadcast journalism field, we would love to talk with you. For further information, contact News Director Fred Jackson at 662-821-2033. 
Introducing Hannah's Heart, a half-hour program specifically designed to encourage Christian couples walking through infertility and miscarriage. This is not a show that's going to promise you a certain outcome, but this is a show that says, however God answers your cry, we know that He's enough. Hannah's Heart with Ann Cockrell and Kendra White each Saturday afternoon at 5 Central on American Family Radio. You can find the podcast at AFR.net. Okay, some good news during a challenging time for everybody, and this could really help. You may know hundreds of thousands of people have already made the switch to MediShare, which is the affordable alternative to health insurance. And with so many people looking at how they pay for health care right now, seeing premiums going up or the cost of COBRA plans, MediShare has a special offer and a lot of people are taking advantage of it. Simply apply by October 30th and they will waive your new member fee. That's $170 savings. And of course, that's just a start. The typical family saves $500 a month after making the switch. MediShare is a Christian community that has shared over $4 billion in medical bills and it's worked beautifully for decades. I'll give you the number here in a second. And if you call, you can get a price within two minutes. Just tell them the promo code SHARE to get your additional savings. Here it is. Call 833-44-BIBLE. That's 833-44-BIBLE. 833-44-BIBLE. This is Washington Watch. I am Tony Perkins. Glad to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. All right, a report from the Associated Press earlier this uh, week caught my attention. It highlighted how progressive prosecutors around the country are increasingly pursuing workarounds to GOP-backed state laws that they don't agree with. They're simply not enforcing them. In fact, according to this report, uh, last October, more than 70 prosecutors from blue districts around the country publicized that they won't bring charges under increasingly stringent laws that states have passed against abortion because they should not and will not criminalize health care decisions, even, even if the landmark abortion rights case Roe v. Wade is eroded or overturned. Again, I'm, I'm quoting from the Associated Press. And in June, more than 70 elected prosecutors and law enforcement leaders signed a similar letter pledging not to charge doctors or parents who could face criminal penalties under state laws barring certain medical treatments for transgendered youth. Now, some would say, well, Republicans have done the same thing. Uh, They have uh, encouraged churches to be opened when there has been uh, orders that they be closed. They're pushing back against these mask mandates. Well, is there a difference How are we to approach this growing divide in our country? And I think it's something we need to be aware of because when laws become partisan and people say, well, a Democrat passed that, therefore I'm not going to abide by it, or a Republican passed it, therefore I'm not going to abide by it. How do we make sense of this? What what should be and what has historically been the foundation, the basis for law in our country? Joining me now to talk about this is David Clawson, director of our Center for Biblical Worldview here at the Family Research Council. David, welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks for having me, Tony. All right, let's, uh, let's just start with the examples I laid out. You've got a number of prosecutors refusing 
saying that either even now with state laws that have been passed regarding abortion restriction and if the court overturns Roe v. Wade, meaning that the, the constitu- this idea that there's a constitutional right uh, is uh, finally exposed, that it's not there, uh, they're saying we're not going to enforce those laws. But then, you, on the other hand, you know, we've gone through this in the last two years, and I've been very vocal about this, that, you know, churches, when they're told by their governors that they cannot be open, they have to decide who they're going to listen to, God or the governor. And so is there a difference between the two, and are there troubling trends that we see emerging? Yeah, Tony. So there's definitely uh, a difference between the two in my view, and there is a troubling trend. Just look at the examples that you just gave. I think to start the conversation, let's go to the foundations of what law is. Uh, you know, uh, there's a couple ways to think about uh, law, what law is, where it comes from. Uh, those of us who maybe follow a natural law tradition would say that law uh, ultimately doesn't come from legislatures. It comes from God, uh, that we have right. this inherent right and wrong that's built in uh, to humanity. It's kind of built into the order of society. Uh, then you have the positive uh, school, uh, legal school of thought, which is uh, man-made laws. These are statutes statutes and codes and regulations uh, that have been enacted by a legislature, which may or may not uh, be in accord uh, with God's natural law. And, um, you know, most laws that you and I are familiar with, Tony, like the speeding limits, those are examples of positive man-made laws. Now, ideally, uh, positive law uh, would be based on a a lawmaker's sense of the, the moral law. Uh, right. So I think that that framework's helpful it, just to think about the difference between natural law and positive law. To, to use a, an economic analogy, it's kind of like when we took the dollar off the gold standard. All right, when when it was attached to the gold standard, it had a solid foundation. Yep. We knew that it had intrinsic value. Then when we took our economy off of the gold standard, we could manipulate that economy. Now, it didn't mean that every dollar was bad. It was still, it could be be good. But we've seen how the economy has been manipulated and how fiscal policy and monetary policy has uh, oftentimes led us astray as a nation and gotten us to the point where we're $29 trillion in debt. So it doesn't mean it's necessarily bad, but it's better if you are rooted in and grounded upon something that is transcendent and solid. And that's what the law has historically been as you said, natural law, custom law. And now we have this positive law. And and also I'd make one other distinction in the fact that what we're talking about here with democratic law, uh, democratic prosecutors, these are laws that are duly enacted by elected representatives. We go back to what happened during the, uh, the, the COVID pandemic and these shutdowns. Those were not passed by elected legislative bodies. Those, in most cases, were edicts that were determined by executives, by governors, by mayors, without any oversight of the elected leaders, you know, the city councils or the state legislatures, which is why, in, in most cases, the courts uh, overruled them. Yeah, that's absolutely. And I think that right there is the key to this discussion, Tony. Uh, at the end of the day, in this country, the law of the land is the U.S. Constitution. And so any uh, from the federal, state or local level, any kind of law or ordinance, uh, any kind of code that's enacted, it has to be in step with the U.S. Constitution. If not, it's illegal. It's unconstitutional. It exceeds or oversteps the jurisdiction that our government has. And that's exactly what was happening last summer is you had the government, you had these 
these blue state, largely governors and mayors, uh, stepping way beyond uh, what the Constitution would allow them to do. But even as Christians, even more significant than overstepping the Constitution, uh, literally going against the bounds of Scripture. Whereas Christians, we know Acts 5, we must obey God rather than man. And so I think that's that's key. A lot of the rules that were very arbitrary uh, that were put in place last summer, and some that still even exist today, Tony, are kind of this, by fiat, uh, there's no backing behind it. Whereas what these Democrat district attorneys and others are doing, these are duly enacted laws by legislatures. And what these lawmakers are saying is, we don't like the law, therefore we're just going to pretend that it doesn't exist, we're going to disobey it. And that right there is a recipe for lawlessness. Right. Well, let me go back to your example of the speed limit. Um, you know, when when a, a, a legislative body, and, and again, we're using legislature, but let's say the legislature, just like the legislature uh, in many cases restricted um, abortion or, or protected life, and you have Democratic uh, prosecutors saying we're not going to enforce that. I mean, we cannot take it upon ourselves if there's a speed limit to say, well, you know what? I have a Democratic legislature, and, uh, and therefore I disagree with this, and so I'm just going to drive above the speed limit. We don't have the right to do that. I, I want to read from Second uh, Thessalonians, mm-hmm. where uh, Paul talks about this issue of lawlessness, because I, I think we need to see this in the context of what is unfolding in the times in which we live. He says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and, and now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way, the Holy Spirit. And then the lawlessness one, lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the work of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Now, I know the people on the left who listen to this program, their heads are exploding right now uh, <laughs> as, I, as, I quote, as I read Scripture. And with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is this lawlessness has been on the march really since the Garden of Eden. But as we move toward the end of time, it becomes more pronounced. Now, uh, it should become no, it should be no surprise to our normal listeners that we believe the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. Uh, he is going to establish his reign. That'll be after the rapture. He'll come, set up his millennial kingdom. Um, you know, don't want to get too much into the eschatology of all of that. But the reality is we're seeing this unfolding right before us. So given that context, and I think the scripture is there so that we're not caught off guard and surprised by this, how should we be responding, David? Well, I think we should be alarmed. Uh, I'm so glad we're even having this conversation, Tony, because you're absolutely right. There is a spirit of lawlessness uh, that is breathing across this country from coast to coast, and we've just highlighted some examples. And I think as Christians, whenever we we encounter stories, we're, we're thinking about government, we're thinking about these questions, we're, we, we need to go to the Bible. And I think it's just important to emphasize and reaffirm that as Christians, you know, we're not against the government. In fact, we are grateful for the government. Uh, Paul in Romans 13 said that government is ordained by God. It's instituted by him to do good, uh, to promote good, and to restrain evil. So as Christians, we are people 
people who are actually very grateful for the government, uh, which is one of the reasons that in, in a constitutional republic, we are the government. We, right. we absolutely need to be participating out of love for our neighbor. And so when we see this lawlessness, Tony, uh, that is against the spirit of Scripture, and, and it threatens this country as well. Right. And, and let me just say this. Uh, I've said it before, and some may be offended by this, but it's the truth. January 6th was more evidence of lawlessness. Um, that was total lawlessness. Not, not the people who were gathering peacefully, but those who stormed the Capitol. That was lawlessness, just as the riots, plural, that spread across the country in the summer of 2020, uh, which you know a lot on the left have forgotten about as they focus on January the 6th. But all of it comes from the seeds of lawlessness. And we cannot give into, and this is where I think Christians have to, why we need to be in the word of God so that we understand the times in which we live so we know how to respond. Because if not, we lose hope. And then we respond in, in ways that are lawless. Now, I'm not saying that there are no bad laws and that there's no reason to be concerned, but I wonder how many of those people, and, and I, I, you know, I don't want to paint everybody bad with a broad brush. I don't know who all was there, but I know that that was a, a case of lawlessness. And some people, I hear this, you say, well, you know, I'm not going to pay my taxes anymore because it funds abortion. You know, I, I don't think we have the, the right to go to, to, the ver to that end point when we haven't done everything else in between. How many of you have been vo voting in every election? How many have been supporting candidates mm -hmm. who are pro-life? How many have actually become candidates and run for office? Uh, how many have been working within the system? See, I, I think we have to work within the system as long as we can. And when we, when we don't work within the system, we begin to lose our opportunities to do that. But I've not yet seen where the door is completely shut. Now, it's become more difficult with the media silencing and this marginalization of Christians and this effort by social media to silence Christians. But we still have the ability to get involved. We're seeing this in school boards, uh, these uh, school board uh, demonstrations and races that are taking place at uh, historic levels around the country. So we cannot give in to this spirit of lawlessness. I believe we have to resist it by doing what is right and letting that be a testimony convicting those who are engaged in the lawlessness. No, I agree with you, Tony, and I'm, I'm glad you even mentioned what happened January 6th because this is on the left and it's on the right. Um, that there, You see lawlessness uh, in all corners, and as Christians, again, we are first and foremost people of God's word, uh, which you see an order. There, there's a divine structure to, to the, the way things work. And again, government is a good thing, and in a constitutional republic, we are the government, and that's why we, we need to be involved. What you just rightly said, you know, come election time, uh, I'll be making arguments why we need to be voting. That's a stewardship. We're called to be good stewards of everything and, God and by gives the way, us. By the way, the voting is just the minimum. <laughs> that's just the minimum. Uh, everybody should be voting. Everyone listening to my voice, every Christian in this country should be voting. That's a minimum. But they should be doing, we need to be doing more. We need to be speaking up. We need to be advocating. We need to be supporting Christian candidates for office with our time and with our resources. We need to become candidates. We need to be informed. We need to be engaged. We need to be light in this time of darkness. We have a responsibility and we have to resist the tyranny and, 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 and not just the tyranny of, 
overreaching government, but the tyranny, the tyranny of lawlessness. We right. cannot give into that and be caught up in the stream of that. We have to stand firmly on the truth of God's word and advocate it and abide by the law. I mean, that if not, we're going to see more chaos, more lawlessness. In fact, what happened, I think, in the summer of 2020, when you had all these riots, you know, that was the same time that the churches were closed and shut down. And, and I think that's just a picture of what happens when the church is removed from society. Well, I agree with you. I remember having conversations with you, Tony, last summer. There was, you know, statues near my house where I live in Washington, D.C. that people were trying to pull down. And it, and it was interesting. There, right near my house, Lincoln Park, you have this statue of Abraham Lincoln that they tried to tear down. The churches that border the park were boarded up and closed down. And so I think absolutely. And there's biblical precedent for this. You know, Judges twenty one twenty five, when there was no... Uh, a sense of God. There was no following his law. The book of Judges ends by saying, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And when people do what's right in their own eyes, you get lawlessness, you get chaos. And that's why Christians, again, need to go back to God's words and realize law, government, these are good gifts that we need to steward well for his glory. We have to have great discernment in these days in which we live. We're not saying we abide by, uh, you know, unconstitutional, baseless edicts, but we cannot just haphazardly reject laws that we do not like because they were passed by one party or the other. David Clawson, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for uh, joining me today. Thank you, Tony. And folks, I want to thank you for joining us as well. I hope that was somewhat thought-provoking. Maybe some of you are on the edge of your seats, but think about it. Look what the Word of God has to say about it. I think we need to resist the lawlessness. All right, until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you've taken your stand, just keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.